Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn in them to Joshua chapter 1. As was mentioned, um, starting a new series in Joshua, I actually took two Sundays uh, by way of introduction, talking about the book in an introductory way. And now we're going to dive into the first chapter, and we're going to sort of take uh, this chapter, this book, almost chapter by chapter, but not quite. We'll take larger chunks toward the end. But let's go ahead and begin our time by reading the first chapter of Joshua, which will be the text we'll tackle this morning. And remember, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the river, the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do, and and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys the words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Amen. That's the reading of God's word, and let's 
ask his blessing upon it now. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture and for this book of Scripture, and we pray as we begin to make our way through it and as we focus in on this chapter 1 of Joshua, we pray that you would do that work of illuminating our minds by your Spirit so that we can understand your Word and softening our hearts so that we might be willing to believe and accept what it says. And we pray that you would renew us and wash us with the water of your word, that this would be an experience of the power of your spirit through the scriptures in which our lives would be changed this morning through your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we tend to romanticize doing hard things for God, whether that's sharing the gospel with someone, a friend perhaps, or teaching a Bible lesson at church to children or to adults, or becoming a pastor or going to the mission field. It always turns out to be less glamorous than we imagined. When the rubber meets the road, in other words, and we're about to do something hard for God, it's often so terrifying that we feel like backing out. And one can imagine that this might be something of how Joshua felt as he sat there in his tent on the plains of Moab, surrounded by millions of Israelites who were looking to him to lead this conquest of the entire land of Canaan after the death of Moses. This was something they had all anticipated for the last 40 years And he knew in his head how it was supposed to work, but now that it was time to do it, perhaps he was acutely aware of how inadequate he was for such a daunting task. You know, despite his gifts, despite the experiences that he had had serving Moses over the last four decades, Joshua, after all, was just a man. He Lord gave him in this first chapter of the book encouragement. And what we find in this chapter is going to turn around and be instructive and encouraging to all of us as the people of God today as well. So before we dive in, let's just take a moment to recall where this chapter fits in the overall structure of the book of Joshua. So Joshua chapter 1 in its context, first of all. You know, remember that the book of Joshua I mentioned could be divided into two halves. Joshua 1 through 12 is all about Israel conquering the land. Joshua 12 through 24 or 13 through 24 is all about Israel dividing up the land. Conquering, dividing. And then if you look at that first half of the book, you can see that it could be divided in half as well. Joshua 1 through 5 are all about Israel entering the land, while Joshua chapters 6 through 12 are all about Israel taking the land. So if you look at that first half of the book, it could be broken up into entering the land and taking the land. Now Joshua chapter 1 then, it's in that first part, it's the opening scene, if you will, of that first half of the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 5. And so this whole section is about Israel entering the land. But this 
first scene in that section focuses upon the Lord's initial charge to Joshua to be Israel's new leader after the death of Moses. And in this charge, the Lord instructs and encourages Joshua to do this very hard thing. So, having put Joshua then in its context, Joshua 1, let's just dive into its contents here. And I think this chapter, this first chapter, breaks down into two parts. You saw them as we read through. Uh, Verses 1 through 9 is the first part. And this section contains, really, the Lord's commission to Joshua. The Lord's commission to Joshua Verses 1 through 9. Now, the book opens with these words. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, and then you have what he said. But just take that first line there. It's interesting if you think about the first five books of the Bible. They're often called the Pentateuch. Penta, five, first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were all written by Moses, right? And so, not surprisingly, they end just about at the death of Moses. Someone besides Moses tacked on to the end an account of his death. But the Pentateuch ends with the death of Moses. It was written by Moses. It's obvious from this opening verse, isn't it, that the author of Joshua, whoever he was, was self-consciously picking up the story where the Pentateuch had left off, isn't he? After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, this happened, right? And so the last book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, ends at the death of Moses. And now the first, the next book in the storyline of the Bible is Joshua. And it's picking up where Deuteronomy left off. And specifically it says at the beginning here that the Lord spoke to Joshua. And it says, to Joshua the son of Nun... Moses' assistant. So clearly here as we start into the book, right? Because he's assuming that you know who this Joshua is. Joshua, the son of Nun. And, and rightly so, because Joshua was a fairly significant figure in the Pentateuch. He's mentioned first in Exodus 17 as the one who led Israel into battle against the Amalekites shortly after the Exodus. He then became Moses' quote, assistant, same, used, same word used in our text in Exodus twenty four thirteen, And one of his first duties was to go up with Moses, at least partway up Mount Sinai, when Moses received the law from God. And then later we see that Joshua would be stationed regularly at the tent of meeting, the great tent where God's presence and a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night would descend upon the tent, and Moses would go and meet with God. And whenever Moses departed, Joshua would stay there and be stationed at the tent. And eventually, Joshua was one of those 12 spies sent into the land of Canaan to spy out the land. And he was one of two spies, along with Caleb, who came back and gave a good report and said, we should go up and take the land. And he encouraged the people to trust God. Joshua then served Moses throughout that 40-year wilderness wandering period, which God imposed upon the people because they didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb and instead rebelled against the Lord. And so 
that entire generation that had come out of Egypt at the Exodus ended up dying except for two men, Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two from that first generation who were allowed to then enter the land of Canaan. So Joshua was already an important figure. He was a leader in Israel as Moses' assistant by the time you get to the end of the Pentateuch. Now we see in the first two verses of the book of Joshua that the Lord appointed this man Joshua to become the new leader of Israel after Moses died. So he said in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. And then just to clarify that Joshua was to do this as Israel's new leader, in verse 5, the Lord told him, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Now, the choice of Joshua to replace Moses as leader of Israel, this wouldn't have come as a surprise to someone who had read the first five books of the Bible because it was predicted many times in those books. In fact, we see it first in Numbers 27, uh, verses 12 through 22, where God had taken Moses up to a high place and showed him all the land of Canaan and then told Moses, remember, because you disobeyed me, you are not going to enter the land. You're going to gather, be gathered to your people in death. And then he told Moses to publicly commission Joshua as the man who would eventually lead Israel into the promised land after Moses' death. And Moses addressed the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, Deuteronomy is sort of like one last sermon of Moses that he gave to the people of Israel as they were poised to enter the promised land. Six different times in that great final sermon of Moses, he tells the people that Joshua was going to be the one to lead them into the promised land. So that's why we see this book opening with God commissioning Joshua, the son of Nun, to lead Israel over the Jordan into the promised land, and to take possession of it. Now, I just want to pause here. This isn't the, the main theme of the chapter, but I do think that there are some interesting principles here about leadership, since that's what we're talking about. Joshua is the new leader of Israel, that I think are instructed to us because they really apply to leadership throughout the Bible. So first of all, you see, in the covenant community of God's people, God is the one who raises up leaders for his people. So we see here, it was the Lord. It wasn't Moses who said, you know, let's choose Joshua. No, the Lord raised Joshua up to lead Israel. And so it really is with every leader. In fact, in Ephesians 4, God calls pastors and teachers, for instance, gifts that God gives to the church. So ultimately, leadership in the covenant community of God's people is, It's a divine calling. And so when we think about leaders, we shouldn't think of the church choosing its leaders, but rather the church recognizing, identifying and recognizing, and then appointing those whom God has raised up. Second, those whom God does raise up to lead his people, he prepares them and he equips them. And you see that so clearly with Joshua, that uh, Joshua's appointment came only after many years of being Moses' assistant. And in Numbers 27, verse 18, when the Lord is describing how he's raising up Joshua to replace 
uh, Moses after he dies, the Lord specifically says that Joshua is a man in whom is the Spirit. So in these ways, you see that the Lord equipped and the Lord had been preparing Joshua for leadership so that by the time it came for him to step into that role, he was ready. And this is true with leaders in the church as well, by the way. Uh, I can see how God has done this in my own life over the years, that he equips and he prepares people to serve whom he is raising up to be leaders in his people, among his people. Third, we see that leaders in God's covenant community are characterized by service. You just can't help seeing this incredible thing. You know, Moses, if you were to ask, you know, the Jewish people at any point in redemptive history, who is the greatest leader in your history? You know, probably they're going to think Moses, of course. So he's the greatest leader in the Old Testament. But did you see how he's described here in verse one? The servant of the Lord. In fact, it's interesting that Joshua would later be called a servant of the Lord. And in fact, the Messiah, the great king, God's ultimate anointed one, he would be called the servant of the Lord. In fact, he would save himself. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you know, that's a principle that applies to every leader in the church as well. God's new covenant community. Leaders in the church are not to lord it over God's people, to use their authority in a self-serving way. That's what leaders in the world do, right? Oftentimes. Instead, leaders in God's people are to consider themselves his servants, whose job it is to carry out his will among his people. Fourth, leaders change, but the Lord remains. You you would think that the death of this great leader like Moses would be absolutely devastating for Israel. They had lost their greatest leader. But it wasn't. You know why? They still had the Lord. (laughs) And he just raised up another leader for them in whom was his spirit once again. And he said, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with Joshua. Because it wasn't, important who their human leader was. That's not to say that human leaders are unimportant, but what is ultimately important is that we have the Lord. You know, the Lord, brothers and sisters, remember this. The Lord is your sanctuary in every generation. The Lord is your refuge and your strength, the one to whom you turn for guidance and protection and security in every generation. And we're to remember that so we don't put our hope in human leaders and become too discouraged when, for instance, they fall or they die. Human leaders, after all, come and go. You know, we got a good 20, 30 years if the Lord is good to us, maybe 40. I just heard of a pastor who retired after 60 years. But what, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60? It's a blip. And then we're gone. But the Lord remains the same. And he alone is our eternal hope forever. You know, after appointing Joshua as Israel's new leader upon the death of Moses, we see that the Lord then went on to encourage and instruct him about what to do in verses 3 through 9. And he told him four main things that we see. First, 
He instructed Joshua to lead Israel across the Jordan and take possession of the entire promised land. So we see that in verses 2 through 4. So there the Lord says to Joshua, Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. You know, that word translated go over in the Hebrew, it's, it's an important word in this opening section because it appears 32 times in the first five chapters. That's why so many scholars have suggested that the main theme of Joshua 1 through 5 is Israel entering the land, going over, entering the land. And so God commanded Joshua to lead the people over the Jordan into the land. And then the Lord told Joshua that he had given the entire land to Israel. I've given it all to you. You know, God said that because, remember, he had promised this land to Abraham's descendants, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, especially verse 7. And then he reiterated that promise, right? You can't read the Old Testament without seeing it. Again and again, he reiterated the promise to Abraham multiple times, then to Isaac, then to Jacob. And then after the 400 years were over and he raised up Moses, he reiterated it to Moses. And then Moses reiterated it again and again and again to the people of Israel. So the land of Canaan belonged to Israel. God had given it to them by way of promise. And now Joshua is going to lead them across the Jordan to finally take possession of what was theirs by way of promise. And then next in verse 4, the Lord specified the boundaries of the promised land. And this he'd done this many times. This language was familiar from the Pentateuch. Um, but we see that it's just a general description, right? It's basically saying the southern desert, often called the Negev, which if you go far enough down, you end up in Egypt. But that desert region is the southern boundary. The Mediterranean Sea is the western boundary, and then Lebanon, which even today you can look up. It's one of the few forested regions in the northern part of the country, and it goes all the way to uh, the Euphrates River. He's saying that's sort of your northern boundary, and then he doesn't mention it here, probably because they're standing right by it, but the Jordan River sort of uh, formed the eastern border of the land of Israel. So that tells you what land God had given to Israel, at least in a general way. So that's first. He instructed Joshua, lead the people across the Jordan, take possession of the entire promised land, and then he described the land. And then second, the Lord promised to be with Joshua and to give him success. You see this in verse 5. There it says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. It's important to remember that it wasn't Moses. It was Yahweh. It was the Lord who had delivered Israel out of Egypt, who had led them through the Red Sea, who had preserved them in the wilderness the last 40 years. You think, you know, Moses led them out of Egypt. Wrong. The Lord led them out of Egypt. You know, if it wasn't for the Lord, they never would have made it out of Egypt. They'd still be down there in chains, and Moses would have been completely helpless to do anything for them. The key to Moses' leadership was the Lord's presence with him and the people, guiding them, protecting them, providing for them all the way. Now, 
The Lord promised to be with Joshua in the same way he was with Moses. And so they would be perfectly safe. So they could overcome any obstacle because of him. And not only that, but he promised never to abandon Joshua. You know, you all have friends. You remember, you know, you had friends in elementary school and they're, they changed every grade. And then in junior high, you thought, these friends. And then in high school, surely, you know, you're all taking the pictures at graduation. We'll remember each other forever. Next year, you've forgotten them and you got new friends. And then throughout your life, you move and you make new friends. And so friendships with people are transient. But you see, and, and we can be insecure thinking people are going to abandon us. Perhaps you have been abandoned by someone who was especially close to you. But the Lord, it says, he would never forsake Joshua. He would always be with him, always be faithful. And that would ensure his success in leading the people into the land to take possession of it. The God of the universe would be their true leader. And he would be with them forever. And nothing would harm or hinder them. Third, the Lord commanded Joshua to be strong and courageous in carrying out his commission. So we read in verse 6, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. In fact, the Lord, you'll notice he repeats this command two more times in the passage, right? So if you know anything about Bible study, if you see something repeated again and again, that's probably important, right? So verse 7, only be strong and courageous. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And in fact, there's another time when the two and a half tribes tell Joshua, be strong and courageous. So, Probably important. God was calling Joshua to trust his promise. He had said, I will be with you. I will not forsake you. I will make you successful. So believe that and respond in trust by doing what I'm telling you to do. So it's not that Joshua wouldn't be afraid at all. That's not the point. I mean, this was a daunting task, right? These are great nations, far greater than the Israelites. So some measure of a sense of, you know, a quickened heartbeat and a sense of trepidation is natural. But the point was, he couldn't allow his fear to paralyze him into inaction. He had to be strong and courageous and lead the people into Canaan to take possession of it. You know, think of those people who stood, who were in those boats approaching the beaches of Normandy. You think they were scared? Oh, they were scared, I guarantee you. But they were courageous at the same time because they overcame their fear and charged the beaches. That's what we're talking about. Not an entire lack of fear, but that type of fear, courage, that overcomes fear and leads to action. Fourth, the Lord warned Joshua to be careful to keep the old covenant law. So we read in verses 7 through 8, only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law that, my, that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then 
you will have good success. So what was the key to Joshua's success? There's a bit of a paradox here, isn't there? Because the key, of course, was God was going to make him successful. But here we also see that the key to his success was his own fidelity to the law of God. And this goes back to Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the curses where God had told all Israel, if you keep my law, you will experience these blessings. If you break my law, you will experience these curses. These were the terms of the old covenant. And the situation was no different for Joshua as Israel's leader. What was the key to Joshua's success? Keeping the law of God by the power of God. And then what was the key to Joshua keeping the law? Well, the law, as we see here, had been written down in a book, right? By the way, that's why God inscripturates some of his words, writes them down, has them written down, so that they might be preserved for people to read and use throughout redemptive history. And so, what does he do? The book of the law was not to depart from his mouth, it says. Well, that's because... Unlike today, where we often sit down with a book and read it quietly and silently in our heads, in that day it was most common for people to read the, a book out loud. So it was not to depart out of his mouth. In other words, he was to keep reading it regularly. In these days, people read them regularly out loud, not just to take them in, but also to memorize. So that by recitation, it would stay in your mind. It would keep it fresh for you. And then, since he already had a regenerate heart, remember, this was a man in whom was the Spirit of God, Joshua would be able to keep the law because he knew the law. Now, if he failed to read the law, he would not be familiar with the law. If he was not familiar with the law, how could he keep it? And if Joshua failed to keep it, well, then God would not give him success. So, as we reflect on these four things, which the Lord said to Joshua here in this commission, verses 3 through 9, I want to just point out some truths that I think we can see from this commission that then apply to our relationship with God as Christians. I want to highlight four things. First, do you see that Joshua's commission was based upon God's grace, right? And that's true with everything we are called to do in our Christian life as well. Everything God told Joshua to do flowed out of God's gracious promises. He would be with Joshua. He would give give Israel the land, all according to his promises. He would be faithful to Joshua. And we know they didn't deserve it. You can't read the Pentateuch without knowing And it wasn't because they had somehow merited it. This was free favor, promises that God gave to Israel, things that he did for them out of his free favor, his grace. So what God told Joshua to do then flowed out of that. It flowed out of God's gracious assurances of what he had already done and would do for him by his power, according to his free favor. And this is what allowed Joshua to carry out his commission with confidence and security, that it rested upon God's gracious promises and actions and his faithfulness. And you know, 
That principle applies to us as well. The same is true of our Christian lives. Everything God calls us to do in the Christian life, everything we do in service of Christ, flows out of what God has already done for us in Christ, out of his free favor and by his power. It's because he's already saved us from the power and penalty of sin. As an act of grace, through simple faith in Christ. It's because he has put his Holy Spirit in us and promised that nothing shall separate you from my love. It's because he has assured us that he will return for us to raise us from the dead, to bring us into the new creation. It's these promises of grace. It's these acts of power that he does out of his grace that now enables us to embark on a life of service to Jesus Christ. In other words, our obedience to Christ isn't the basis of his favor and help of us. Let me say that again. Our obedience to Christ is not the basis of his favor and help to us. Christ's favor and help toward us is the basis of our obedience to him. And that principle, which we see reflected here in God's commission to Joshua, is vitally important for us to remember. To switch that around is to fall into the ditch of legalism, which will lead either to self-righteousness or to despair. Second, God has promised to be with us just as he was with Joshua. And this is the source of our confidence as we serve God. You know, when God told Joshua, I will be with you, I will not leave you or forsake you. He's not talking about his omnipresence. Joshua, remember, I am everywhere present. No, he's saying that he would be present with Joshua in a special way to bless him with success as he carried out his task. He's saying, look, you don't have to go into that dark room alone. I will be with you when you do it, right? And he's he's not the only person to whom God gave that promise. I will be with you. I won't forsake you. No, God gave it to many other members of his covenant community. You can find it going forward throughout redemptive history. In fact, the author of Hebrews seems to have taken that promise of Joshua 1.5, by the way. And what does he do? He applies it directly to us as Christians in Hebrews 13.5. Let me read this for you. He says, Keep your life free from the love of money, And be content with what you have, for he has said, and then he quotes our text, Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, the Lord is with us as Christians, think of this, in the same way that he was with Joshua. Oh, not to do the same things, but he was with us in the same way. To bless us as we seek to follow Christ. You're not going it alone. I will be with you. And I will never forsake you. And like Joshua, the knowledge of God, that God is with us, should be the source then of confidence to do the will of Christ, even when it's hard. Whether that is being content in times of financial hardship, like in Hebrews 13.5, or whether it's keeping faith when a spouse dies of cancer. Or sharing the gospel with someone 
even though you know it might mean that you lose that friendship. Sometimes our fear and anxiety and the lack of obedience that results from it arises from forgetting that the Lord is with us. I wonder if that's true of you right now. Third, as God warned Joshua to be careful to keep his word so that he might have good success, well, so God tells Christians the same thing. In fact, you remember the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not designed just to make us feel bad, right? Okay, it convicts us of our sin for sure, but it is at the end of the day, Jesus's instructions to his disciples how to live. And you know how I know that? Because at the very end of the sermon, he says this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You know, Jesus' half-brother James took that same thing later on. He says, be doers of the word, not mere hearers only. In other words, when Jesus instructs us how to live in the Sermon on the Mount, he intends us to obey, to do his word. And in fact, there's a bite to it. If you do my word, you will have success. If, like a wise man building his house on the rock, if you do not do what I command, you will, be, you will experience disaster, like the foolish man building his house on the sand. See, keeping the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant is just as important as it was, as it was for Joshua to keep the law of God under the Old Testament. And just like Joshua, the key to being able to keep the commands of Christ to us is that the scriptures, where those commands are preserved for us, remember Joshua had the book of the law? Well, guess what? We've got a bigger book. That, that should not depart from our mouths. Well, okay, we may not recite it out loud all the time like Joshua did, but we should certainly be like the psalmist says in Psalm 1, meditating on it day and night so that we might be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season, and all we do we shall prosper. Do you see? And then having our hearts regenerated by the Spirit like Joshua did, and being assisted by the ongoing help of the Spirit, we will be able to do what we've read about. When we have the commands in our heart, when we have the Word of God and His truth and His will in our hearts through reading and rereading and rereading the Scriptures and thinking about them and what they mean and how they apply to us, the Spirit helps us. He renews our minds and transforms our lives and enables us to obey Christ more and more. We're not going to be perfect in it, are we? We know that. But we will truly be able to obey And since we're not trying to earn God's favor through our obedience, it's flowing out of his grace. See, imperfect obedience is okay. But if we foolishly neglect the scriptures, we won't be familiar with them. We won't know very well what Christ teaches. And that in turn will lead to a lack of care to do what he says. Let me clarify, you guys, this is not legalism. I'm not saying, and nor is Christ, 
and nor was God to Joshua, that we are saved by our obedience. By no means. And for those of you who are in the Romans class this morning, you know what that is. We are saved by Christ's perfect obedience unto death on our behalf. What we're saying, rather, is that in the Christian life, obeying God leads to blessings. And disobedience leads to consequences. And the truth of that is evident not only in your experience, hello, but in the scriptures. I think of what Paul says in Galatians 6, 7 through 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That sums up what God was telling Joshua. And it applies to us as well, brothers and sisters. Fourth, just as God told Joshua that his mission would require courage, so also courage is required for the Christian life just the same. In other words, that command, be strong and courageous. Well, there's a sense in which that could be repeated for every Christian. In fact, the New Testament does say similar things. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Or again, so we are always of good courage. We need boldness, for instance, to do something as simple as confess sin and accept the consequences. We need boldness, for instance, to confess our faith and live out our convictions in the public square when it's unpopular. We need boldness to speak the word of God. You know, just take God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. Well, that could get you kicked out of a lot of friend circles today. We need boldness to believe and speak the words of God. We need boldness to believe the truths and the power of God's word when our circumstances seem overwhelming, when you're going through deep waters of suffering to believe God's word is sufficient. It is true. That takes courage. You see, brothers and sisters, the point is, is you can't allow fear to paralyze you. That doesn't mean that fear is inherently sinful. If you're standing on the edge of a very large cliff, you should be afraid and back away. But the point is that you can't allow your fear in circumstances to keep you from obeying God or to lead you to compromise with sin or to act in unbelief. The Lord calls us, just as he did with his servant Joshua, to trust in him, that he's going to keep his word, and that he's with you, and then to do what is right before him, even though it's dangerous. If you have made an idol out of safety, you got to destroy that idol and be courageous. So we've looked at the first part of chapters 1 through 9, where the Lord commissions Joshua. Now let's more briefly just consider this second part of the chapter, where Joshua begins leading the people. He's been commissioned, and now he takes up his mantle to lead. And you see this in verses 10 through 18. And I just want to summarize briefly. There's really two main things that he does here. First, you look in verse 11, and he tells the people to begin preparing to break camp and to enter the land in three days. And essentially, I think he's just saying, 
make provisions. Pack up food and water and what you're going to need because we're going. And then second, he reminded some of the tribes about a commitment that they had made earlier and he calls them to keep it. Some of you may have been confused about this part, but let me just remind you, back in the book of Numbers, you guys have read Numbers many times, right? Back in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, Israel had defeated two kings, Sihon and Og. And they had taken possession of the territory of these two kings, which was quite substantial, and it was right on the other side of the Jordan from the Promised Land. Later, it became called the Transjordan region. If you heard of the land of Gilead, that's where it was, in this region just beyond the Jordan. And in Numbers 32, we are told that the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh had asked Moses if they could stay and live in this land rather than cross over into the Promised Land. And after it became clear to Moses that they weren't, this wasn't a second rebellion like happened you know, when they refused to enter the first time, um, the Lord allowed it. But he said that they could do that on condition that their armed soldiers would cross over into the land with the rest of Israel and participate in the conquest of the land. And they'd agreed to do that. Now, here in Joshua chapter 1, the time has come for Israel to enter the land. And so Moses or Joshua reminds those two and a half tribes, tribes of that commitment that they had made to help Israel conquer the land of Canaan before returning back over the Jordan to live in their land. Now, in verses 16 through 18, we see that they agree to fulfill their commitment. And then they demonstrate their allegiance to Joshua, saying, we will obey you as we obeyed Moses. Now, this whole event, it's interesting because it really reflects the value that God placed upon unity in the old covenant community. There was no breaking off and, you know, just doing your own thing. The Lord required the two and a half tribes to join the nine and a half tribes in conquering the promised land. Why? Because they were one nation in the bonds of the old covenant. And what was the second great commandment? You kids know. I know we've talked about it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was to knit them together. It was to be an expression of their unity, right? And so when you read the history of Israel and you see how the kingdom broke into two and then you hear about tribes warring against each other and all that division and factions... That was contrary to God's original design for unity within the covenant community, that that love would bind them together. And you know, that same principle is true with the church of God, God's new covenant community. You know, sometimes divisions in the church, in the visible church, are necessary. Uh, Paul told this, said this in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. He said, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized, Right? So if some people in this church started denying the substitutionary atonement of Christ, well, there's going to be a division, right? And it's necessary, right? Sometimes it's necessary for that reason. But it's always a result of sin. It's always contrary to the church's identity as the one new covenant community of Christ. And therefore, Paul would urge the church in his great magisterial letter, 
The church as a whole, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And that's why he said at the beginning of chapter 4 in Ephesians, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, right? And one implication of this is that we should not simply, so if you're a family in this church, and you tend to be sort of focused around your family, it is not appropriate as Christians to just focus on your own private interests only. You need to think about your brothers and sisters. This is why God has given us gifts to use, to serve in the body. If you're not serving with your gift, you're in disobedience to Christ. But it also means that as local churches, we must remember that wherever there is true gospel-believing churches with true Christians in them, we are part of one body of Christ. And we should be willing to help and support each other in the church and as local churches as much as we can. By the way, this is why we pray for other churches in our worship service. It's why we consider partnering with other churches in supporting local ministries like LifeLight, Uh, and why we would partner in sending missionaries out together. It's why we let another church use our building, for instance, when they lost theirs during COVID. It's why I participate in a pastor's fellowship with pastors of other local churches. It's why we sometimes send people to preach and teach in other churches, and sometimes they send people to preach and teach to us. It's why these are all proper expressions of that recognize our unity in Christ. Now, of course, there are limits to the ways that churches can partner together, no doubt about that. And these are dictated by doctrinal distinctives and practical issues. But our impulse should be to help and support other true Christians within our own church and in other true churches. In other words, here's a way of putting it. Sectarianism? In other words, we're the only true church, and everyone else isn't even saved. That contradicts our identity. In Christ. I also want to point out one more thing which emerges from the words of Joshua to these two and a half tribes. It's very interesting, and we need to just stop and look at it for a second. We should notice here at the beginning of the book of Joshua how Joshua described the land which God was about to give Israel. Do you see it there? Verse 13, he said, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. You know, Joshua described this land of Canaan as a place of rest. That is, a place where they would experience peace, where the Lord would vanquish their enemies and give them rest on every side. And therefore, as a result of their peace, they would experience God's prosperity under God's blessing. And this reflects a common theme in the Old Testament. It would resurface later in the book of Joshua when the conquest is over and the author says, quote, The Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. That same language is used in the days of Solomon and David when they actually expanded out and occupied the full territory that God had given to them. And under David and Solomon, they experienced peace and prosperity. The Lord gave them rest in the land. But because of Israel's sin, of course, these times never lasted long, did they? And eventually Israel was ejected out of this land. So the prophets foretold a day when the Lord would bring them back 
to the land and give them an ultimate experience of rest. In fact, one of the places you can see this is Isaiah chapter 14. There he says, The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath and with increasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Now, of course, like all these prophecies, this anticipated the coming of the Messiah and a time when through the Messiah, God would redeem his people by judging their enemies. And when Messiah arrived in Jesus Christ, remember what he said? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Yes, Jesus provides the ultimate rest, never quite experienced by Israel, but foretold by the prophets, except the rest that he gave them, you notice, was a rest for their souls. It began with a spiritual deliverance from, for their souls. He gave them rest by delivering them from the guilt of their sin and the enslaving power from their, of their sin. He vanquished their enemies of sin and death. How? Through his own atoning death on the cross and through his glorious resurrection, which secured their life and vindication. And so anyone who is weary of the burden of their sin and of their shame and of the oppression of the evil one can find peace and prosperity. In other words, rest for your souls by simply coming to Jesus and repenting of your sins and putting your trust in him as Savior and Lord to forgive you and save you. You know, maybe there's someone here who hasn't done that yet. Why would you wait a moment longer? Come to Jesus as he invites you to do and find rest for your souls. And yet the author of Hebrews recognized, it's interesting that the rest which Jesus offers, though it begins with this spiritual experience of deliverance through faith in him, yet that's not all of it. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it will also include what Jesus gives us, an ultimate experience of rest which is still future. It's a rest which was actually foreshadowed by Joshua leading Israel into the promised land as a place of rest. Except it's far better than that. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 4, 8-11. He said, For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What is this ultimate rest which he speaks of, which believers hope to enter? It's what the author of Hebrews described a little later on, I think. In Hebrews 11, 14 through 16, he described it as a homeland for God's people. A homeland which would be a better country than the land of Canaan because it would be a heavenly one. I think he's talking about the new creation. See, the new creation will be the ultimate resting place which Jesus will bring us into when he returns at the end of the age. And there we will experience the fullness of peace and security with all our enemies vanquished. 
under the blessed reign of Christ. Our souls have tasted something of it now through justification and the new birth, but then it will be in full. Why? Because there, the former things will have passed away and all things will be made new. And so, brother, sister, as we read the book of Joshua where the Lord fulfilled his promise to give his people the land of Canaan as a place of rest, there's a sense in which it should serve to point us forward to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were the greater Joshua, would fulfill his promise to give us the new creation as an ultimate resting place at the end of history. And so there's a sense in which it could be said of us like it was of Abraham and Sarah and the other patriarchs in Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Well, in conclusion, as Joshua stood there on the edge of the Jordan River, He faced a really daunting task, didn't he? He was to lead this nation of people into the land of Canaan to conquer all those nations and take possession of the land. And he needed encouragement to do that because that was a hard thing. And that's what God gave him in Joshua 1. And, And since many of the truths the Lord used to do that apply to us too as Christians, perhaps we're meant to draw that same encouragement for the hard things that the Lord has called us to do as well. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Joshua in this first chapter and the way that it speaks to us as it fits into a larger story of redemption that is fulfilled in Christ. We pray that we could take principles from this story, principles about who you are, about how you operate, about your saving work in our lives, about the world and our sin, and that we would learn from them and that you would change us and sanctify us through this instruction, but also that we would, this would point us to Christ and that we would look to him as the one who gives us ultimate rest and the one who is with us and will not forsake us, the one whose grace is the foundation for our life. And we pray that you would minister to us through this book in these ways. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.